Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate X Gray X. We have taken math as far as it can go. We have stretched all the content we can as far as we can. We have made 982 feel like a million. We have taken 225 issues of this poor, maligned. Just, I mean, she can't even. Find fucking play basketball you know what i mean and just this poor woman can't have any peace and we have ridden the world of spider girl to now it's luscious deliciously conclusive end those are some adjectives that you used that i don't know that i would use but we are going to talk about a book today that is called spider girl the end and jokes on you we're not going to be done after that so just buckle in yeah this is definitely a fuckle the buck up kind of situation because this is, of course, our further exploration of the MC2 universe. We have spent so long delving into the incredible world of Spider-Girl. We kicked all of this off with an episode zero, and from there we covered the first volume of Spider-Girl, J2, and A-Next in our first full episode. We then took a look at the second volume of each of those titles. That initial run of books ended, and we found ourselves in our fourth episode looking at Spider-Girl. Fantastic. Fantastic Five, and series favorite Wild Thing. You know, Wild Thing was a big turning point for you and I on this show because, like, I kept being like, no, but I promise, J2 hugely imprinted on me. Oh, it turns out it was just some pseudo-sexual stuff. <laughs> Yikes. And then, like, you know, <clears throat> Wild Thing comes along and we're both finally like, now it's good. Well, I think Wild Thing was proof that you could find diamonds in this mine. Like, we were getting a lot of cute little geodes and stuff, but there is some real good stuff here. And And the funny thing is, it just kind of is popping out randomly from DeFalco's head. And I mean, it starts with Spider-Girl and it starts with this idea that as a long-term Marvel writer, this is a person that understands how to create a superhero. From there, I question what happened. And I don't want to say what he can do because he has proven in other books that he can create a superhero and write a really great story for him or her, whatever, whoever the hero is. But in this case, he created a really amazing hero and wrote some really great stuff for her and some really, really tough stuff. And the problem is that this went on for so long that the numbers just start to swing in favor of the more mediocre to bad stuff. And especially at the end, that's a bummer because that's what you are left with. One of the beautiful things about Wild Thing is that it's a really good setup for a character. The identity is clear and right there. It's great reading it today where we have Laura who is such a similar character but has really gotten her due and has gotten to be the daughter of Wolverine and take up the mantle and you know has become an X-Man and is just a fantastic character and you see the potential for that in Rena and her story is so short in the MC2 overall that she never really gets sullied she never gets
gets like to rise to heights of excellence, but doesn't get so much page time that she starts to swing into stories that are really tough to read and make us question her as a character. So we're left with someone we really love, and I cherish that above almost anything else in the MC2. I love your explanation of that. It really, it fits my own. I really find myself romanticizing what Wild Thing could have been to a generation of readers, especially a generation of young women, because it should go without saying that even when Wolverine is not targeted at women, nor do women necessarily make up the largest percentage of Wolverine readership, women are very attached to Logan and are some of the strongest Logan stands. And giving them a piece of that puzzle a little earlier was a really cool move. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, X-23 came from the X-Men Evolution cartoon, which came out after Wild Thing's first appearance. I mean, my point just being like, she is a character that could have inspired a more mainstream female presence of the Wolverine family earlier than we got. And I'd be curious to know if any writers who took up Laura after her introduction read Wild Thing at all or knew anything about her or kind of wove that into the character. But one thing you and I talked about is how as amazing as X-23 has become and she's had great stories, she's been around a while now, so she's had a lot of series to be written for her. Her origin is really rough and it's difficult to, that's one of those ones that like we're starting to get far enough away from it that we can just ignore it. But, you know, it got brought back up when she was in X-Force and it's difficult to escape and it's really ugly and misogynistic and just something I don't think would be written now. And Wild Thing has this like really great simple origin that she is just the daughter of Wolverine and Elektra and you know there's no weird sex stuff she I think is a little overzealous but has no like trigger scent where she goes berserk and would kill everything um there's a wholesomeness to the character that being the child of Wolverine and you know I think it speaks to some of the things that people love about him which is that he loves his charges you know he loves the the kids that he kind of adopts and then he loves his clone kids and he he expresses it the way he expresses it but he loves hard and you see that in Wild Thing and it took a while to get there with Laura like I said I just really cherish Wild Thing and I think a lot about how she could contribute to how we view the Wolverine family overall and we talk about the Wolverine family more and more these days so that's I just think about it a lot that's such a great way to kind of surmise the best of what the MC2 did by talking about you know the impact of Wild Thing and how she might have inadvertently helped us get such a good grip on Laura so early because there are some really close calls too. You know, for every J2 that looking back on it, you know, definitely read it with some rosy colored puberty glasses. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be a big, strong guy too. Uh, Dark Devil and The Buzz (laughs) are actually really interesting comic storytelling. They get ridiculous and they are filled with what moments and there is so much gay, but they're actually really close to being Rena great. Because, you know, Rena's book was never great, but Rena is great. And I feel like Dark Devil and The Buzz, while marred and mired by the fact that they are super consumed in Spider-Girl's story, you know, when we covered them alongside Spider-Girl Volume 4, which also had that crazy wizard one half, just to remind people how long into the past we're talking about here, we saw Spider-Girls 17 through 27 when we covered those two stories and that not only marked the end of some really interesting creative departure decisions but the end of side books for quite some time and in some ways I was okay with it because the side books are became increasingly difficult to get into because you knew that they probably weren't going to 
continue. I mean, you knew they weren't going to continue reading it in advance and knowing what got published, but it, I got excited about the buzz and Dark Devil especially. The books elicited complicated feelings, but I think there was really good story there. The Dark Devil story is so complex, but as I sat with it and understood that that was just going to be the character's origin from now on, I got into it enough that it became something that I could work with as somebody who is studying the character and is interested in like how you would continue working with the character and developing them and taking those pieces of their origin. So while it was a weird, complex book, I would have liked to have seen more to develop that stuff. To go back to J2 for a second, that was one of the, that's, you know, it was really weird. The character is really weird, but he gets written charming enough and just enough that while he does have some weird, dumb stories and is just way too like, this is a big, dumb boy. Like, look at these big, dumb boy stories that everybody's going to laugh at. There is a charm to that and there is a like we were all once a big dumb boy and we all want to be big and be superheroes and you know be able to change into something that is better and watching him become more and more comfortable with being J2 again it's another character all these characters that we're talking about I could see returning in some capacity and being really interested in and I would love for anybody else to write them not because Tom DeFalco isn't great but because as we have discussed so many times on this show the whole part of comics that is exciting and makes them interesting and makes the serial nature of them something you want to return to is that other people get to write on top of what people before them have written and you get inspired and you create new stories and you develop characters that are formed from multiple voices and these are all characters that I would love to see again with another voice molding them. And these characters did continue to appear but from our sixth episode through to our eighth episode which covered Spider-Girl 28 through Spider-Girl 79. Oh my god. We only covered one thing not called Spider-Girl and that was our first Spider-Man family issue where we read the oddly prescient Aranya story which I, I feel like I ultimately collected it in the wrong spot. I need to go back and like cut some shit to pieces or something because that really that Aranya story it threw off the groove and maybe even you know we I remember at the time us being like okay as long as this is just this one off thing it's pretty cool and then it winds up like first of all she steals black tarantula <laughs> which again you know best move the guys made thank you so much creative team because the more i sit with it the more i was just thinking about being a giant strong boy again and yeah. it was like wouldn't it be cool being black tarantula but no, now i'm obsessed with away. black tarantula <laughs> i know i just I, he's another one i want him in other stuff <laughs> i realized that i just wanted to be black tarantula yeah. so that i could be like a lead in spider girl story without taking it from her yeah and that's not what this book needed. I don't know if you're correct about that. I don't know if I feel the same way. I think Black Tarantula always upped the ante in a way that made the book interesting. These writers could not do it, but another writer could have massaged the age stuff and made this work and given Spider-Girl, you know, a Catwoman. We've talked about it like that before. Talked about this with uh, the buzz too. Like these are two guys who are at her level, who are on her playing field, who are doing the thing that she does that is really the core of her. This is Spider-Girl. This is not Mayday's high school adventures. So the characters that are closer to Spider-Girl are the ones that interest me. And Black Tarantula was a really weird, complex, larger-than-life character who was funny to follow on panels.
channel, but like literally had some weight to him and could do stuff. And I am glad that they kind of just pulled him back and put him with Aranya and that made sense. There's still age stuff there, but whatever. It meant that we didn't have to go in an odd direction and have things get ugly. But if I could have another writer on here, maybe a female writer and get some some background established, I thought he could have been a really great boyfriend foil to her. He always just made the book a little more high energy and fun in places where it was like getting a, and still is getting a little schloggy with dark crime plots that just don't feel like spider girl stuff and then we're still flashing back to the high school for no reason and that doesn't feel very like exciting so a character like black tarantula really ups the hype i completely agree and you know when i realized that i had misspoken but your explanation of what is exactly my feelings is was so perfect there was no reason to interrupt it i only meant that there was no reason for ever to become black tarantula co-starring spider girl and that i only didn't want to self-insert myself over her in the story because yeah i don't think that this creative team would have maybe managed that extra piece well and to your point about there's still possibly some age stuff yeah but i think now the age stuff is that aranya's a cougar yeah oh yeah that is that is now the problem because we have to have black tarantula be younger or this whole thing with mayday is like staggeringly bad it's staggeringly (laughs) bad so he has to be a young guy which is completely plausible there's no you can't see his fucking face most of the time i know guys who are 18 19 who are that big god fucking bless them and i hate them but i can solve it in my head it's really not a big problem but it does have to be said it does have to be reckoned with because he really creeps on her hard you know the reason that it works for most of the book is because he's always a bit of a background character that is always saying follow spider girl's lead and you're absolutely right he could take over a book really easily like physically he could be the biggest thing on panel a lot so it we dodged a bullet insofar as you never know how those things are going to go if they really commit to putting him with mayday and making him a big character does he take over the book i think that's a completely valid concern and we didn't have to deal with it but yeah i mean like the only thing we have now is that aranya is kind of a cougar i can't wait to get you to read one of my admittedly least favorite eras of daredevil if for only the fact that black tarantula is the best thing in the book at that point and the second best thing and i almost don't know how she didn't show up here there was a short-lived epic comic style almost fashion noir called dakota north out of marvel in the 80s that was hugely influential on me as a kid i mean i literally thought because of this book being so good to me as a kid that there must have been other hard-boiled female fashion detective ladies running around i just thought that like dakota north this private investigator who was this hard-edged badass woman who had been around who fucking knew how to tussle i just thought that because she existed and jessica drew existed there were more and then ultimately we get jessica jones and the role jessica jones plays in daredevil by bendis dakota north plays in daredevil by brubaker and during that run black tarantula becomes a really big deal and sticks around for the next volume as well so it's kind of cool you'll get to read some kind of average daredevil with some really above average black tarantula i am totally stoked for that from that weird detour that you know like like, not like weird bad but like weird for the show and then weird that i didn't expect us to talk about aranya there for 20 minutes well i think we kind of have to we have to take stock of these big important great things because we're going into something that is just simply not that great and we have said for i think the last two episodes but definitely in the last one that this is all one 
huge arc that is cut up between multiple books that it's never clear when they thought they were going to finally be canceled and be done. So these this arc just keeps going and has no sense of finality. So us chopping these episodes up is we're just doing the best we can with what we have. And I'm really excited that we spent some time reflecting on some really positive things because it's going to be difficult to find a lot of positive in what we're talking about. And that's unfortunate because we are starting to sunset this character in this universe. And I would love to do so thinking of the best things. Well, the next two episodes to discuss are two of our favorite ever. Episodes 9 and 10 really revitalized our love for the series. Episode 9 containing the just truly and like as a gay man, I understand the word I'm about to use. It is the F word. Truly fabulous Spider-Girl stories from issue 80 to 88. Like some of my favorite issues ever. And then we had the hysterical Ohatmu entry, which was a blast to talk about for like 12 minutes. We talked about that for longer than we talked about the Aranya story. (laughs) And then we got Last Hero Standing, which we, dude, we blathered on for about an hour. That fucking miniseries really reminded me why MC2 is for heroes. Yeah, um, it was the best of the whole universe. And it really, that and Last Planet Standing, they both really made me think of Ultimatum, which was a disappointing uh, breaking point for the Ultimate Universe, which continued on for a while, but it felt like they were really trying to have things. They were they really put the brakes on hard there. And Last Hero Standing felt like not a stopping point for MC2, but a point to have a really big uh, signpost. I think, you know, to signal that this was not going to be something that continued for very long, but to celebrate the characters that were a part. And in that continued celebration, while Spider-Girl kind of honestly floundered, issues 89 to 100 marked not just the end of the first run of Spider-Girl, but the end of freedom from the cruel grip of the Hobgoblin. You know, yes, the twins were hot. And yes, editing the Mindworm stuff, I repeatedly burst out laughing because the two of us are out of control with jealousy over his body (laughs) in everything we say. It is so fucking funny. Um, But it's just not a great arc. But man, Last Planet Standing is all time one of my favorite AU stories ever. Yeah, it's just a fun epic. From there, we found ourselves squarely in the amazing years Mm. for, yeah, I know. (laughs) Issue for episode 11, we saw Amazing Spider-Girl 0 through 6 alongside the return of Avengers Next, which was matched by Spider-Girls 7 through 14, as well as Fantastic 5, Volume 2, 1 through 5 for episode 12. And I can really see where even talking about it, I'm kind of losing some excitement and getting into it. Yep. You know, we are in our 15th episode for episodes 13 and 14. We covered the balance of Amazing Spider-Girl through issue 30. We covered Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man 1 through 4, American Dream 1 through 5. And we are now standing at the precipice of what must be the end of Spider-Girl. We have three spectacular digitals remaining, followed by what is just essentially eight spectacular digitals smushed into four issues as though it makes sense. (laughs) And then we're going to look at Spider-Girl the end. And man, it's a pretty quick trip from April 2010 to October 2010 for these titles. Quick trip and really quick turns on a lot of plot stuff. And we find ourselves at a creative, consistent point yet again, with very few exceptions. For the rest of our material, we're going to be looking at stories written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Ron Friends, inked by Sal Buscema, and colored by Bruno Hong of Impacto Studios, with letters by Dave Sharp. These issues, like I said, came 
out in 2010 with Spectacular Spider-Girl Digital, 9 through 11, also being printed as Web of Spider-Man Collected, 5 through 7. Spectacular Spider-Girl would then return to print for four issues in Spectacular Spider-Girl Volume 2, which featured backup stories with artists like Todd Nock returning to say goodbye to some terrific characters. And then we read Spider-Girl The End, which I swear to fucking God, you cannot convince me. Half of it was just not written as the next digital exclusive. Oh no, that 100%. This story was partially done and they had it in the bag in case they didn't get canceled again and they got the end and so they figured out how to make it work, which on the one hand I respect, on the other hand, we really do love May Day a lot and we want the best for her and her, the end, should be the best. Well, the sales sure aren't. <clears throat> we start this episode with just over 24,000 copies sold of Spectacular Spider-Man number nine in Web of Spider-Man number five, because as I mentioned, these three issues, these first three, final three, Spectacular Spider-Girls of the first Spectacular Spider-Girl before we do the four of the second Spectacular, I fucking hate all of it. So it's just, and not thinking against the book, just the packaging on this is so absurd. No wonder this book couldn't get better. No wonder it couldn't figure out what it was trying to be when it's never given a chance to flourish. Like, I really feel like Tom DeFalco had to feel like a parent who couldn't make his kid better. Like, this book was just, they never let it die, but that doesn't mean they treated it like it was alive. Yeah, I think that is the perfect summation of what happens. Like, this this really could have had a send-off before Amazing Spider. It's issue 100, a beautiful end. It's not really working in Amazing Spider-Girl, and that's unfortunate, but we could have ended at issue 30 of Amazing Spider-Girl. Like, that is where we had the indication that this probably couldn't continue, definitely couldn't continue in the form that it's in. You know, I, again, I always return to let somebody else write it, but we don't we don't stop at Amazing Spider-Girl. We keep going. And there's all these signposts that say, I think it's time to hang up the hat. And they never do, but they don't ever say, no, we want to keep this character alive and therefore we have to do something big, something different. We have to give more resources to lift this character back up. It is just keep cranking them out. And that's what they did. That's how we wind up with Web of Spider-Man number five at just over 24,000 copies. Web of Spider-Man number six at just about 21,005. Web of Spider-Man number seven, the final Web of Spider-Man to feature an original Spider-Girl reprint, weird thing to say, comes in at just under 20,000 copies. However, that is the bright spot for pretty much everything else we are going to discuss for the remainder of the series, with the exception of when we talk about Spider Island, because yeah, it's going to happen. We're going to be taking a look at Spectacular Spider-Girl Volume 2, 1 through 4, which start at 17,000 copies and end at just under 12,000 copies. Not a whole lot of room to fall, to be honest. And then Spider-Girl The End just kind of comes in at 16,000 copies or so. Not really sure what to do with that. It's of note that the next book we're going to discuss, Thunderstrike Number 1, which comes out just a few months after Spider-Girl The End, sells roughly the exact same number of copies as Spider-Girl The End. Spider-Girl The End sells 15,888 copies and Thunderstrike number one sells 15,689. So only like 200 people less really kept going at first. But these numbers are really bumming me out, man. I mean, we knew this was happening. We'll get to Thunderstrike, but that's to be expected for a character that is the 616 version of the 982 character that shouldn't be... The age that he is because of how time works between these two universes, but here we are and we've got this character and I just, what 
a hard sell. I, I can't imagine why anybody thought that that was a book that we needed. And I'm not surprised that it did not resonate with audiences. Um, I actually found it a little bit more of an interesting read than I expected, but I did really find it unnecessary. And it's not super surprising to me that it didn't do so well. Speaking of things that really didn't do so well that I have no idea what to do with, good gracious, I guess there's no better time than now to jump into the final three issues of the first volume of Spectacular Spider-Girl, issues 9 through 11. I found myself very frustrated initially with the treatment of Mayhem. I think she is a really great character, and there's a lot of things to really love about her. So I'm confused in a lot of ways why this is the treatment she gets right away. Yeah, it really feels like at some point somebody watched Buffy and was like, May needs a faith. And they copied the story beats beat for beat. And then when they got to a certain point where Faith becomes more of a villain than a hero, they just said, let's crank that up to 25 and make this character as insane and irredeemable as possible and just let this story run on whatever rails we have set up. Because it starts out with this choosing sides, you know, sort of, oh, we're going to make a decision. And then you feel like when one of those stories starts that the obvious decision is going to be that, oh, I'm a hero and I'm going to do the good guy thing. But ultimately, this story is about mayhem not overcoming this. And that stresses me out a lot. So I'm not sure what to do with the opening of this story. However, it is really of note that we spend a lot of time trying to get back into Mayday's head, which is kind of a nice change of pace because I feel like we've maybe lost sight of Mayday and seeing her be like, yeah, Black Tarantula might be bad news is useful. Yeah. From the get-go, from the first page with Peter Parker and the rest of the police squad investigating a bombed building, there's just so much text and we then cut to Mayday. There's so much text. Every panel and every page is packed with stuff. Even when nothing is happening, the pages are really chaotic and full and they're just not saying enough to justify the amount of text that you see and the amount of action in an individual panel where people are just ostensibly sitting at home. There is so much just sitting around this issue. Everybody is thinking about their next plan. No one is actually doing anything. So yeah, I guess in that regard, because this text isn't reflecting action-based momentum, this text isn't reflecting the characters actively in motion. Yeah, okay. It is kind of frustrating because I could do with a little less like Don Silvio. I am just so not interested in this bad guy. And some of the most text in the book is on that page. Yep. But Mountain Man Marco is hot, I guess. Kind of looks like, um, you know, a roided out Elvis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's nice. I really do have to hand it to Ron Friends. On digital page nine, Aranya just looks stunning in this close-up panel at the bottom of the page. It really is like memorably some of his best work that really depicts what his style is at its best. Because a lot of times, I'm not critiquing artists. I could never do this. I could never draw anything like once, let alone like repeatedly time after time. But a lot of times Ron Friends' style feels a little rushed. But when you look 
look at a panel like this, you see exactly what he is going for with his style in a way that is really iconic. And this is just one panel that I will think about and remember Aranya very fond. We've also made some comments that specifically we've thought that a lot of the characters have a very similar face. And I don't just mean somehow April and May, who frequently don't look similar at all. (laughs) But, you know, there is some consistent facial work pretty frequently. And that Aranya image really tells me she is someone different. Yeah. Speaking of someone different, uh, you know, April sucks. And I hate that she's flirting with Jean. And then the first thing she does is she fucks things up with Wes. And then she's like, "Mm, time to go killing. April, stop it. It feels like there's no motive here. Like, this is just a person doing things for no reason. And it's not even like, I'm the girl that introduces a little chaos because that's going to make things more interesting. She's just doing stuff. And it seems as though, once again, part of the binding of doing stuff relates to a sense of thinking that there is an unlimited amount of time to get to her story. Yes. And I don't really have time to just deal with this stuff. I don't mean that like cruelly. I don't mean that unkindly, but I only get so many issues to get to know Mayhem and I have to spend some of them sharing her with Mountain Man Marco or Man Mountain Marco or I don't know. Just It's fine. They're all kind of the same big crime guy at this point. And that's the other thing. If this story could focus on the complex relationship between these two sisters that are two halves of the same woman, I could more conveniently forget that I'm frustrated by some of the trappings, but it's that the trappings are frustrating and I'm sharing that page space with characters I don't want. I also think this is just the wrong direction for this story. We never acknowledged that Peter Parker's clone saga happened, but we have all of the characters that were a part of it who are huge parts of Mayday's life. Kane shows up constantly. Kane has turned into a pretty great character, all things considered. He is a uncle figure to Mayday. He is really trying to do his best. He lets Peter beat the shit out of him all the time and is just like, you're still a good guy and I'm not gonna fight back and I'm not gonna fight you. And, you know, we have pieces of Ben Riley in a really weird way. Still really confused about what's happening there, but we've got Dark Devil in the mix and he's got some Ben Riley in him. There is stuff that is about clones that is part of this book that has never been acknowledged in a way that is almost like we know we have a good story here but we don't want to touch it in case we ever fuck it up and I I get that I love that motivation a lot of the time but I think this makes a lot more sense as a Clone Wars update you know the way we updated the Goblin War and we got to a great point with Normie that ended up being really cool I didn't like it up until we got this one issue where they're not fighting in costume they're sitting in a room talking to each other and they resolve every legacy problem between Spider-Man and Green Goblin. And we could have done something like that for this clone stuff. Instead, we are still stuck on weird themed crime families that are obsessed with being the king of crime and I don't care about fucking crime. Especially not when it comes to these women as they're trying to come of age. The crime stuff doesn't feel like it fits anywhere. No, it really just feels like, you know, they're trying to do police work because the police are incompetent. This is way too late to bring in Ruiz. Yes. I vaguely remember Ruiz being introduced like in Spider-Girl number one, maybe. And so for her not to fucking really matter till this arc and only barely, it feels so disjointed with what I want. And I so greatly look forward to the Chesbro, Aranya, Black Tarantula scenes (laughs) because they break up the sort of 
of weird anticlimactic energy that I ride through issues 10 and 11. There's just not a lot of connection between the characters. One of the most interesting things is, does Wes know who Spider-Girl is that's running in the background of this? And that shouldn't be what I'm most looking forward to when I finally have mayhem and I don't know. I just feel like this is an example of where if you're told how much time you have, it forces your brain in a good way. And if you accept that whatever you have is the end and you should write something that is complete and done. And if you get another thing, you can write another thing. But you can, if they're giving you four issues, you make a four issue arc that ends. You don't leave stuff and have it pick up from other stuff. And it just, this is so confusing and has gone on so long. And I also look forward to Chesborough Aranya and Black Tarantula because when we're talking about all the crime stuff, it's always a different dude. There's always a different dude in the mix who is trying to be the kingpin of crime and then he gets dethroned for whatever reason and somebody else shows up and they want to be the kingpin of crime and in the background Black Tarantula is like ruling every other crime world except for New York City and it's like I'm going to come take New York City at some point obviously but he's consistent and we see him and he's familiar every time and he has the same goal but he doesn't ever get it but he's also never so opposed that he stops so he's there he's present it's stability going from Tombstone to Silverback to Mountain Man Marco whatever the fuck and coming from Hobgoblin and we decades ago had Canis in the mix like there have just been so many dudes who are like I am going to be the kingpin of crime and I can't believe that has been what so much of Spider-Girl's story is about and then we even get this sort of weird cycle of having seen so many crime guys so many interchangeable crime guys who Spider-Girl has been forced to work with we have Mayhem optionally choose to work for like the least interesting one ever. There is something so disappointing. Like, I almost wish that she had killed Man Mountain Marco and could have worked for Hammerhead because at least Hammerhead is like a classic spider villain. So he feels kind of like a get, not really. But like, if you told me he was going to be in a Spider-Man movie, I'd be like, oh, okay. Whereas if you were like, Man Mountain Marco is going to be in a Spider-Man movie, I'd be like, you guys should really check your sources before you post spoilers. Right? So, I don't know. Between Mayday, between Mayhem turning on Mayday and Wild Card. Oh, God. Wild Card is ridiculous. I, I, I don't even mind the concept of a dude who's superpower involves throwing cards not like gambit but like cards as weapons which is a real thing whatever and then it can work even more in a superhero universe this character design i don't know what to do with it <laughs> I thought this was the third funny face, angel face fucking brother. Crazy eight angel I would face. believe yeah. maybe it's an unused design. Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like that. This issue also gives us something that I find super uncomfortable, issue 13. There's a moment where on digital page six, Wes says that he can smell green apples in Mayday's hair, which is a reference to something in a previous issue that I thought was kind of weird as well. I know you're talking about there's a panel where she has her shampoo bottle and it's green apple shampoo her green apple shampoo is literally called naturals juicy green apple 
I guess that it's supposed to be like herbal essences. Yeah. But we did just see her turn 16. And some of these panels are maybe starting to fall into uh, later tropes that we had been so excited that Spider-Girl had worked so actively to avoid. Having that moment of Wes coming up behind her and sniffing her hair like a weird fucking perv is directly next to Mayhem in a kind of intention. You can tell that they are trying to be like, oh, she's dressed slutty because she's doing the thing. And she's... She's flirting with Jean just in a very like horny way. They're two really horny, creepy panels. And this book just didn't do a lot of that ever. And that's good because from the start, everybody involved was too old to be writing horny teens. But now it's 10 years later and everybody is way too old to be writing horny teens. And I can't help but think that part of the thing is May shouldn't be a teen anymore. If May had aged in real time, May would be too old to be writing about horny teens. (laughs) Exactly. Just make her, at least make her an adult at this point her just having turned 16 after all this time and without enough character growth just like by default just in what we have even considering that this hasn't been you know two years whatever that we just still haven't seen enough growth for this character it's weird however a character that we got an enormous amount of growth for is black tarantula (laughs) such that when he's just randomly fencing with his lady love first of all heart of the spiders right on their chests (laughs) shut the fuck up glad we just stopped mentioning the prophecy though uh you know as we move toward the end of this issue it feels as though the book gets a little confused as to what we should be focusing on sometimes i don't understand why if we ultimately find out peter parker is wild card in a random weird bid to train his daughter i just doesn't know why he thought the way to train her was to like torture her in a zoot by, suit yeah it's bizarre i don't understand what we're trying to get at here he like his fanfare music that he has playing whenever he comes onto the scene is squirrel nut zippers. It's so weird. Now the book really doesn't end. <laughs> it just ends like, and it even says to be continued and it's to be continued in a different volume. And there's just no fanfare about it. It just kind of clunks itself shut, but it doesn't just clunk itself shut. No, no. It adds in like the most annoying thing it could possibly add in. I think it's fitting that we get to talk about this character, TK, all things considered. Yeah. Frank Castle, the Punisher, is inexplicably and for no discernible reason written into this series in a way that I can't make sense of. Yep. I can completely understand with all of this crime shit why the Punisher would be in the mix. I cannot understand why it is happening now. I cannot understand why this book ends like if the next issue is going to just come up and continue we are going to jump to another volume and that's fine and if they knew that that was fine too but I just feel like if you cannot end a book and give it a proper ending give people who are deciding like I I picked this up I read it it was great I'm probably not going to continue with the next volume give them a proper ending don't end on a cliffhanger that isn't a cliffhanger it really is just like a here's the setup for the next issue there's really no way that these three issues constitute an arc they barely constitute an issue and i can't help but i guess grade them because you know one through
through eight was really kind of an arc that had like an ending almost. So between the covers and like that 11th cover being really misleading of what's going on with May and Wes at this point, all of the inconclusive stuff, if I were reading and I got to the end of issue 11 and did not know that there was another volume called Spectacular Spider Girl because the Marvel app is not a perfect creature and the last page tells you series that you might want to look at following completing this one. Yeah, it doesn't recommend the second volume of Spectacular Spider Girl because this was a digital book. It recommends other digital books. So the inconclusivity, you know, I'm going to treat this the same way we treated Amazing Spider Girl 13 and 14 when we covered those and say that as a bridge, it functions, but as an arc, there's nothing here. There is definitely nothing here. While you are right that the first eight gave us a story that had some conclusive elements, this ongoing thing of the crime stuff has not stopped. And that is the thing that is carrying through that has been going on for so long that is taking us all the way into the end. And it just, it there's never a conclusion to it. And, and I mean, even in spider Early the end, there really kind of isn't. But it's so weird to me that this is the like big epic villainy arc is there's no like specific villain. It's just a ton of villains. And they kind of don't really even care about Mayday. They are just doing their own thing. And she keeps running in to try and stop it, which is great because she's a superhero but it's also not like somebody with any significance to her that is really interested in engaging with her as an opponent in some capacity. It is just, again, kind of like mayhem, people doing stuff. All right, let's just get it out of the way because you know I'm going to say it. Frank looks so good here. Like, you know, just to put it all on the line, I had a daddy thing when I was like 20. I was like, yeah, man, guys in their 40s. And now that I'm in my 30s, I'm like, guys in their 50s? Yes. So like Frank's fucking killing it, man. Looking fine as shit. And uh, I'm loving it, man. I, I really, cause Frank sucks. You know, Frank sucks. Like, I can't stop saying how much Frank sucks. And it's because he's just a hyperviolent parody of police vigilanteism. And that's when Frank is bad. When you use Frank to be a bad guy, Frank is his best. Yeah, you have to acknowledge that there is nothing good about what the Punisher does. He is there to reflect what is a danger of every superhero's journey, which is that they become like Frank. And I feel like that is the ultimate journey that Frank takes even. Like, Frank didn't want to become like like Frank. That's the problem Frank faces. He can't deal with who the Punisher is. Because in many ways, the Punisher is no better than Silverback. Silverback has his men going around killing people, and Punisher has his guns and grenades. It's just the agents and tools they use vary character to character, but that's even part of the problem for me. I don't know if Silverback and Punisher have some complex history. I don't know if they've got a rivalry, but playing it out in the pages of Spider-Girl sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not fair. It's not uh it's it's not Spider-Girl's story now. It's Frank's story. And if what you wanted to do was MC2 Frank's back, I could live with it. Like if the last MC2 miniseries was inexplicably the Punisher, why not? You know, yeah. this universe has taken some weird journeys. I am fine with one more sort of weird sidestep. The- sure. We've had contact between like iconic contact between Spider-Man and the Punisher in the past. So I was actually I've 
have been surprised in previous things that there haven't hasn't been a mention of the Punisher. I mean, it makes total sense. This is just a weird way to do it. Punisher first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 129, which I always remember because the Punisher is in black and white, and the Black King and White Queen's first appearances in Uncanny X-Men are also 129. So black and white in Amazing and Uncanny 129, pretty easy to remember. That's so, fascinating. Right? It's really interesting. And I think Morbius is 101 and Phoenix is 101, so they both represent rebirth and a refusal to die for Uncanny and Amazing <laughs> yet again. So I can't help but notice that the Spectacular Spider-Girl Volume 2 number one is a little bit longer than the other issues will be. And I think it's because there were a few pages added to improve the page length to make it a little bit more full. And I am deeply frustrated by how Spider-Girl number one, some of it looks. We have not had that Mayday Heron forever. We have not had, you know, Goblin Normian forever. Why is Dragon Man there? Why is Crazy 8 there? Why is Wolf Boy the wolf face? I don't even remember who the fuck that is. Oh, that's Canis, I guess. Canis, yeah. All right. But then, like, there's Wilson's, like, pudgy little face. Just like half covered, half in. Like he looks a little bit like a thought bubble that Crazy Eight is having. <laughs> and when did Crazy Eight ever have like white face right. like that? Like, yeah. Uh, and that's just like Venom. That's regular Venom. That is not unnamed Dusk Dusk. This is a really disappointing page. And the only thing that's interesting is okay, you know what? Part of me wondered if they were sure that Peter was going to be wild card from the beginning. But now that I am looking at page six of the digital of Spectacular Spider-Girl Volume 2 Number 1, he is literally fixing his clothes right after coming in from being Wildcard. She says, Wildcard and Peter comes in in one of the signature colors that Wildcard wears, the bright yellow, and he is surrounded by the red. He is walking in and saying, what's with the costume? Also, Wildcard has a staff weapon that he is subtly using as a cane. One trillion zillion percent. I think I have to give it up that like Tom DeFalco, you know, it's that it's this incredible thing that we keep talking about. The book just never got the shake it deserved because I think when I look at this sequence and I see all of like the subtle storytelling and the nuance and the creative way that it's all framed out. Yeah, this is great storytelling. I wouldn't be surprised if I flipped back into the previous issue and could line these panels up. Like that wouldn't surprise me because while it's very clever and it's very lovely, it's a very literal interpretation of visual symbolism. It's very one for one and one for one is something Tom loves. You know, like I'm not trying to be like me and Tom DeFalco, we were getting Cubans the other day and sitting back with a couple of brewskis. No, like it's something Tom DeFalco really seems to love is that sort of visual symmetry. And I respect it. I enjoy it. It just if this were all packaged more clearly and divvied up in a way, like even if they had to go back and redo it and release it as like the definitive spectacular spider girl or something, I just wish there were a way to make this a little more seamless and help me get over the shock of the fact that we are not acknowledging that volumes have a beginning and an end. That's always been one of the curses of Spider-Girl's unfortunate marked career. Like, she's a great character, but and even the way this book is run is pretty well executed for being the only of its kind. But there's places where, especially by this end, I can see the wear and tear. I'm seeing the tired. I'm seeing the sort 
sort of struggling to get us to those visual cues because we used to see them a lot and we used to see them everywhere. And now, you know, when I look at the art on page seven of the digital of this issue, I think Black Tarantula looks good visually. I think Frank looks good visually, but the direction on these panels are not as strong as the best work from this team where we have a full panel of Black Tarantula breaking in and he's got that really signature chunky sort of deformed muscle that we really like on the character. But then the following two panels, the fourth and fifth panels on the page respectively, Black Tarantula is somehow optic blasting the same guy at the same angle, at the same position, in the same moment, in the amount of time it takes him to throw the guy he's holding. So it's almost as if Black Tarantula's optic blast is keeping this one guy in place, breaking his jaw a lot. My no prize explanation for it is that it's like actually not that strong and like the guy can resist for a second and hold himself up if he keeps if the thing keeps going he's gonna fall down but it takes three seconds let's say which is enough time for him to throw the guy that's in his hand from one panel to the next that said we've already cracked up about the insane reveal that this is one of his powers that we saw in late spider girl and just cracked up about it's later explained and it's fine it's just you know like the black tarantulas collect powers and they get stronger but the first time we saw the optic blast it was completely out of nowhere it was really kind of funny the way it came up and now when i see them i just laugh about it and this does technically make no sense but i'm still just constantly amused by the fact that these are even a thing okay you win (laughs) i can't believe how i i don't know i miss kane and agent whedon and that crew yeah i miss the buzz showing up i miss dark devil like dying for may like i wish that we could go back to some of those moments getting these little panels of the amusement park don't fulfill me getting these moments of brenda and normie don't fulfill me i really wanted that book to grow instead of saying well we wasted enough time on that stuff and it didn't pan out i mean spider-man took 60 years to get here you can't just think you're gonna jump in and not that not that the creative team did but perhaps editorial did and the diminishing returns led to some of the changes i don't know i return to the idea that kane's role in the clone saga feels really important in this moment and we've got mayhem running around not really understanding who she is or that she's a person she has no look she just shapeshifts into whatever she feels like she has this insane symbiote thing going on it just feels like kane would be a person to step in and say i get what you're talking about peter should be too it was his fucking clone saga you know the fact that no one is acknowledging this is really really weird and the fact that from a writing perspective this is where Kane gets really minimized where we have both a clone like him and then like all this stupid crime stuff which is supposed to be that team's bag that's the type of stuff that they're trying to stop and also the fact that they're not there and not really big in this feels like why the fuck are you letting this happen because we needed to lose sight of all of that to make room for mayhem in a lot of ways if mayhem had appeared at Amazing Spider-Girl Zero and it had been like a boiling thing in the background leading up to May and April coexisting. I don't know. You know, part of me is always just thinking, what if Laura Palmer had had a few scenes with her cousin? And that's, I find myself so frustrated with all of the great things that we see that could have happened that for reasons of an uncertain production just couldn't be. And the sort of sudden crazy of mayhem and everything that 
that we're leading into with it. I love her design. I love that she's this awesome blue feminine carnage, but it just doesn't feel earned at this point. No, it does not feel earned, and it feels like a disservice to the character to send her this far off the rails. Because May is really pretty straight-laced, and she she's a kind of do-gooder. She's very buffy. Like, it's a great character archetype, and May is fantastic, but she could lighten up a little bit. She could loosen up a little bit, and if she did so, there are probably consequences to that as well. And that's enough. Mayhem, as somebody who is born into the world, kind of loosened up and lightened up, and that gets her into trouble sometimes, that's that's enough. We don't have to go into full-on, this character is like Mayday, but what if Mayday was completely crazy and had no control and like maybe wanted to be a little bit evil and wasn't sure how she felt about murder? That's way too far, way too fast, and it does a disservice to a character who I, like, when we saw that fucking clone in a vat early on, I rolled my eyes so hard I thought they were gonna fall out of my head, but I have been charmed by this character. This feels in the same way that I didn't like the original Clone Saga, but I have been charmed by MC2 Kane. And I, the MC2 Kane has grown over time. We've learned little bits about him. We've seen the way that he cares for the Parkers. As I was talking about, he really does let Peter be really pretty nasty to him and never fights back and just kind of lets it go. And Mayhem deserved kind of an arc like that. This is just chaos. And that the whole thing just sort of culminates in, oh, by the way, Punisher? Yeah. <laughs> and Mayday is just like, um, hey, Uncle Kane, by the way, Punisher? And I don't know. It feels like this does suffer from the fact that it was just never meant to be packaged as a miniseries. Yeah. And if it had been given room to be the thing it was meant to be, because even if part of the hard part for this book is that it was trying to pioneer digital exclusive in an era where that wasn't quite yet a thing the big two thrived on or thrived at, this was then repurposed in a new way and we get that crazy look of Amazing Spider-Girl 30 May Day again. So this is just like six months after that was the cover to Amazing Spider-Girl number 30. Sure. And they explain that, oh, if you're just joining us... Okay, nine people bought this book, and I'm willing to bet at least 8.2 had read an issue of Spider-Girl before. I think that is a very safe bet. And, you know, she survived cancellation three times and is back for a four-issue miniseries. Let's be clear. Then she didn't survive cancellation. Yeah. And they're like, oh, by the way, here's just a backup story. And then also, we're going to reprint the game (laughs) from the very first Spider-Girl annual in 1999. And the reason I think that's a very funny thing to say is because the very only Spider-Girl annual way back in, oh my God, why would you reprint this? Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. This is not the best of Spider-Girl. Okay, I guess. And I'm excited to get this amazing dream backup story. But my frustration is that in a lot of ways, this amazing dream backup story in four pages gives me everything that I got from the amazing dream five issue miniseries. I like how you keep calling her amazing dream. Oh, I see that I did that. (laughs) It's okay. It's uh, yes, you are absolutely right. This gives you basically everything that you got from that miniseries. I have, since I read it, really been championing the cause that I think American Dream would have been a better character overall for DeFalco to do a hundred plus issue run on. She just feels more where his head is at and like a more appropriate expression of how he sees the world than a high school teenage girl who is the daughter of Spider Man. But you 
you know, that's okay. It was it was a nice little reprieve. It didn't really do anything. It, 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 exactly as you said, it was just I read it and I thought, yeah, that's that's how this team feels about American Dream, and that is a solid representation. Fine. Which is where my relationship with you know a lot of this kind of comes in. At least we see some of these characters again. The end is upon us. It would be nice if they you know got a little a little goodbye time. Yeah. So you know the second issue doesn't do a whole lot to further any of the stakes of the book. As a matter of fact, I find that a lot of the stuff that happens in the second issue really were the foregone conclusions of the first. Not only do we find out Punisher's in town, but now Mayday meets him. Not only are Mayday and Mayhem at odds, but now they are directly at odds and are aware that each other is aware of each other. I don't even know what to say. Because it feels like this is all stuff that should have happened in the first issue. If this is how little time we had left, we kind of maybe could have benefited from compressing some of that story together. Yeah, there's all these scenes in the first issue of Frank like getting out of South America and I that's, no, I don't need that. That's okay. He can just show up in New York. I believe it. Like that's not and I they did a nice job of doing this kind of him and May having parallel tracks as they're doing their thing on opposite ends of the world or whatever, but I I could have just done exactly as you said. He could have just showed up in issue 1 and this whole issue is leading to a climax wherein at the end of this issue Mayday finally encounters the Punisher and so we are now halfway through the series before they in costume are speaking to each other and all of the things they say are the things they said the last time May met anyone whether it's Punisher or Mayhem it's the same fight she's had with April it's the same sort of conversation she's had with anyone who ever had a problem with her dad like none of this feels like it's treading new ground everything with Silverback is the same sort of thing we've seen from Silverback. All of the stuff with Wes and Courtney and April sort of just keeps that same scene that feels like it's been playing at an Indigo Cafe since like Spider-Girl 66 in Momentum. And I know that half of those characters weren't even in the book in Spider-Girl 66, but that's how that scene feels so consistently static. Yeah, nothing is happening at all with the high school kids except for Wes really liking Mayday. Sometimes being a little creepy, but we're chalking that up to writerly mistakes more than anything about the character and it appears that he knows that she is spider girl and that's fine that's great that's very cute but we are rapidly approaching the end and not a single high school person knows that may is spider girl or like interacts with her as spider girl wes will be the exception in a moment but right now he's still really in like uh, i want to tell you something phase and the fact that this is the first person to do it that it's not davida or courtney or moose well after- hold on hold on evidently courtney's known this whole time yeah okay true she's just been playing incredibly coy knee <laughs> I hate it. Um, I don't want it. I don't believe it. I really thought at some point this high school stuff would build to something that even if I didn't like it, I would say that it mattered. And I don't believe I can say that. And it's because the journey here, the sort of weird pieces that have to come together, like you pointed out earlier in this episode that I hadn't considered, it's just kind of all happening. And May is just kind of there. She sets stuff up. And then that whole thing with the shootout with Black 
tarantula with Ruiz and it just kind of goes nowhere and it just kind of hangs there and no one knows what to do with it. And April's constantly betraying me. And I'm just waiting for Daisy's other niece, June, to show up. Just kind of waiting on that one. And then Huey Man, Dewey Man and Captain Louie can show up. But I don't know. This miniseries, because again, these issues weren't meant to be these sort of like standalone carrying the banner stories. And that first one feels like it got artificially inflated in an effort to showcase that it was like a physical print issue. I am really happy about this buzz backup. This buzz backup is terrific. And I even like Frank's whole, you know, you're naive like your daddy or whatever. But which I don't know. Why does he know that she's Peter Parker's daughter? I don't know. Fine. It's all fine. It's fine, right? I would let that one go. Like, I I mean, like, it's bad, but like, this is not set up great anyway. So that one is fine. As you mentioned, we don't have a lot of time here. I maybe would have had him say that in issue one and, you know, have more May engaging with the world and not reacting to it. So speaking of things that we barely get to react to, I love this, the Buzz backup story. Yeah. Because I feel feel like we waited forever for a lot of these characters to be their active selves. You know, one of the things about this story, this the buzz backup being immediately following that particular issue of Spider-Girl is that it's terrific that May actually makes the decision to fight April. Too frequently, May is like, no, I don't want to fight you. Maybe I'll stick to stuff and then fly off of it. And that'll be how I don't have to actually fight you. But the buzz is always, I'm going to jump into that fight. The buzz is always... I am an active hero looking to do good. Something that I've wondered at times is how the reciprocal nature of comics influence on the writers of television has reflected back on comics. I feel like this whole idea of good guys go out patrolling and not simply limited to our Buffy references, but any show that, you know, in that same vein, that same, you know, in Forever Night, Nick was out there looking to find what was going bump. So I think this reflective nature of patrolling can be one of two things. It can either be very passive walking around and when you find yourself in something you get involved or there's the buzzes version where I feel like Spider-Girl goes out looking to make sure the streets are safe when she comes across something bad she does something. I feel like the buzz goes out looking for what's wrong to stop it and until this volume I perhaps don't feel like Spider-Girl was really pushing toward that but deciding that April needs to be combated is at least a huge step toward the sort of heroism that we had come to expect from her early on, but eventually got drafted into characters like The Buzz and American Dream. And that is a really solid point, something I didn't think about enough. I do like that kind of active uh, engagement, as I said before from May. And it we pick up issue three with her doing the same with The Punisher. Yeah. And just, you know, one real quick love song out there. I just love that Richie got to appear in this story. It was really nice that Richie shows up and American Dream and the Buzz. Wow, I really root that on. I love that. That's really cool. I don't know why we've never seen that before. And then I love Colleen Coover and I love cartoonists getting work in comic books because cartooning is so fucking important to the evolution of comics as a reflective interplay as works that exist together. I would never have my vaunted Mark Wade's Daredevil and without Mark Wade's Daredevil, we never could have had Leah Williams and David Baldon's X Factor, you know, the proof of concept on stylized art book for major characters. So, you know, people like Colleen Coover made it cool to be different 
in mainstream comics again. So bless her forever. This just feels like it's about a kid who's four years older than Benji. And literally, he speaks. And I don't know. What do you mean this child always seems so tired? Mary Jane, he just nearly Gwen Stacy'd you. And uh, I I remain disappointed that he didn't stay deaf. All right. So the biggest disappointment of my life is that this Spider-Girl cover isn't slightly different in the ways I want it to be. We could just get like Aranya up there and like peak form Normie. I'd be really interested in exploring that like communal living polycule. But Mayhem, you are. I You know how long it's been since I've had May and Black Tarantula physically touching? <sighs> And mayhem is because I know it's not going to happen, and I want him with Aranya, okay? But I don't mayhem's know. still cockblocking. She is, <laughs> and it's it's awful. And this issue is the first time that the art feels perhaps like it was maybe intended for the size it was drawn at. There's been a granularity to a lot of the art. A certain what feels like resolution lost from perhaps expanding the panels. But then again, I get so fucking confused because there's that to be continued that they. Just just should have fucking deleted and just extended the blue on the top of it. I don't know. I don't know. By this point, they don't feel like issues anymore. No, they really do not. It just feels like this strange collection of panels. The one thing I will give this issue is I, I think you might be right about like the art being specifically designed for this page size. It Things feel like they have more room. And like I was complaining about how everything, every panel felt really tight and full of stuff and chaotic and a lot of beach bubbles that were just packed in just a lot of text and there is a bunch of text in these first couple panel or really just the first page but then after that there's these very expansive like the second page is just a three panel spread and there's not a ton happening you just get this great shot of like for instance spider girl on top of the punisher kicking him then leaping off it it feels like they got room to breathe here and immediately my focus settles a little bit and seeing these two characters finally interact in a superhero capacity gives me the best of what I'm going to get out of this gigantic pile of panels that we are trying to sort through. Because, you know, I even felt that that three panels felt too roomy compared to how tight we've been. But holy shit, if I had just gotten whole issues with that kind of panel spread, you know, I, as a guy who creates indie comics, my indie comic occasionally has a very tight feel, you know, and there are stories we'll do in widescreen, but I really like that sort of tight classic narration on certain pages. And when I get the room to do like, because, you know, you pay per page. So like when I get the time and the space and the room and the page budget to do something this exploratory, I really enjoy it. And that it's followed up by these gorgeous pages with all of this blocking. The blocking is so clean and it's so clear during this fight sequence. I really like how it lays out. I also think that the more I look at it, the more I can't believe how I didn't realize Wildcard literally just fights like Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, I respect that they made that pretty clear. I did not guess the first time around, but it is interesting going back now as we speak and looking at these and seeing they really did a good job of matching the physicality of Spider-Man. It's just really tough to look at this dude in his zoot suit with a like not Guy Fox face mask and a not uh, like barrister powdered wig. It's blonde instead of white. So many odd choices that I don't know what to do with. W is for Wendetta. <laughs> 
I just, oh man, I really love the idea of Spider-Man, of Peter Parker, like putting on a different costume to help Mayday out so that she gets to keep the mantle. This is the thing that I would have loved to have seen early on when we were getting a little too much Spider-Man suits up again. Just this design, guys. This design, why? I also need to ask some questions about who decided that in what is one of her best appearances in the whole fucking series, why Mary Jane Watson is dressed like the Verdigree Widow. <laughs> I'm challenged by this green pantsuit and chunky belt with the most fucking Farah up to God like collar piece. So I think it's supposed to be like a Juicy Couture tracksuit, which is n- dated by this point, like really dated by this point. And that feels correct for this book. I mean, yeah. When I think about like Juicy Couture tracksuits and like the height of what they were trying to be, I think about early Desperate Housewives. Yeah. So I'm really thinking about like 2004. Yeah. By 2010, 2011, while Desperate Housewives was still certainly continuing on the air and finding even more Stephen Sondheim lyrics to get for episode titles, it was no longer selling that same early visual that, I mean, I'm a huge Desperate Housewives fan. I'm just going to put that out there because, uh, you know, I'm also a big Melrose Place fan and there's a lot of connectivity behind the scenes there. But, you know, what people thought that Desperate Housewives was by 2010, still thinking that it was echoes of 2004, it certainly wasn't. And to think then that the way to show Mary Jane is to make her like one of those desperate housewives and misinterpret the thing that, like, it's putting the wrong thing on her and it's misinterpreting that wrong thing in the first place. And then just like that she has Benji right in her arm, like, don't worry, guys, we know there's a kid. He can be in a fucking cradle somewhere. We don't need to see him on panel, but it's just very much this like... He does look like he's looking behind her. Well, and it just feels like, why Like, why does she have to have that? She has other things besides the baby. She's staying at home fine. Like, she's not a superhero. That's fine. But she does not have to just be the mom with the baby stapled to her. Well, I wonder if perhaps having Benji in her arms was to remind us that she has more than one kid already, since the speech she gives on this page is to clearly make April feel part of the family. I wonder if it was to show us the depth and breadth of family that this unit makes up. I I could accept that explanation. I just, I'm very protective of Mary Jane and I am protective of the roles that women get in this universe. And I don't want her to just be the mom whose life is just the kids. No disagreement. You know, I'd had worry that when Aranya started being with Black Tarantula, she would either become just the femme fatale and she was only getting with him to destroy him or that she was just going to become the side piece and they kind of proved me wrong there and they've proved us wrong with Mayday a trillion times. It would have been nice if Mary Jane got a little bit more focus in the ways that we'd wanted but all said and done that her superpower seems to always be peace at least. You know that it's it's the ability to sue the situation even if it is kind of mommingly. I'm grateful that it's an active role in making the world better and not complete passivity and just occasionally going snaps for Peter guys snaps for Peter. (laughs) I don't know why she's a beatnik. 
I like it. I really like Aranya being like, yeah, your timing could be better, but I'll definitely marry the fuck out of you, big man. I love them. I don't know, dude. I want to write this book so bad. I want to write Aranya Black Tarantula, like getting the gang back together, reuniting Spider-Girl, The Buzz, Dark Devil, American Dream. I want so much of the promise of this book. Aranya wound up so cool for how useless she was. And I love her chunky sandals. And, you know, Black Tarantula is just so big. Shouldn't he be happy? And that Chesbro is just, just fucking- in the mix. In the mix, just 2,000% step in time, chimney sweeping his shit across the skyline. He's got a little <laughs> puck in him. And he loves them. Yeah. And I stand by it. She'll never be Spider-Girl to him. But, you know, Spider-Girl would have been like a daughter to him, and maybe Aranya can be a friend. And I really, I don't know, I am so emotionally attached to these three stupid characters. It is, they're the heroes of this book, them and Courtney. Yep, I couldn't agree more. I have been thinking a lot about who I would sweep up if I could get some of these characters. Those three are absolutely top of the list. They're really, really fun. They have a great dynamic. And like, just that Black Tarantula manages to do everything big. He loves big. His actions are all, he's always doing too much stuff. Like the gang, his minions are always ready to blow up the whole building to save May Day. And then he's like, call it off. Everybody can leave. But like, he is just always at 100 in a way that is funny and charming. And they use him, you know, he's in a lot, but somehow they still are using him sparingly. And it just works to have a character that adds weirdly like a ton of like visual weight and like emotional weight, but levity to the humor and tone of the book. Especially because the sort of dual battles that Spider-Girl finds herself in here, one against Mayhem and one against her father, they both wind up feeling very dramatic and kind of silly because obviously Mayhem isn't going to kill Mayday with one issue to go in a way that Mayday won't just find a way to come back from. And I also don't think that Spider-Girl just like uppercutted Peter's face to death. So yes, the reveal that he is wildcard is terrific, but it feels like we're forced to sit through the Man Mountain Marco and Punisher fight in between. And it really feels like it's a different fucking book. Yeah, we're forced to sit through one page for some reason. <laughs> it's such a weird breakup of this fight that's happening between Wildcard and Spider-Girl. And then it just cuts into this one page of Punisher and Man Mountain Mark. But, you know, the mayhem battle against Mayday is one of the most underplayed things in the book because of that to be continued. Because it was clearly meant to be its own issue. And then she's just like, peace, bitch. It feels so out of nowhere. I really understand how they felt like they were always running out of time and yet always had more time. But it really shows in this issue's unevenness. Yeah. And if they're going to break things up like this, if they had to give us something in between that justifies why, like literally, or, or just take out the to be continued and just keep this going. I don't understand why there's just a stop in the middle of it. You know where I would have rather stopped? One page before the end of this fucking story. Yeah. I am without a doubt more frustrated by this appearance of the Hobgoblin than any other appearance of any other character in this book. I know they said he'd be back, but that he's here feels almost frustrating. Yeah. I mean, we spent so much time with this character for what felt like no reason. He's a goblin, but he doesn't do goblin stuff. He 
does crime stuff and he really made so much of the stories about crime stuff and that has continued to go on in ways that are a disservice to May. So having him come back at the very end here just feels like a reminder that we are in a direction that we're so deep into that we can't turn away from that this is just going to be where we go till the story of May Day ends for a while. And it's that there's one issue left. Like, even if you knew the end was coming, one issue left in this miniseries. That doesn't feel like the time to bring back that old villain guy. And we don't get a backup story here. So that's like the thing we end on. We do get a little Benji. Yeah, I'm not sure how this plays out, but to me it plays out like one young man who happens to be a minority says to a young woman who happens to be a minority, look at this cool thing I can do. I learned it from my family. And she says, but look how special that kid is. I don't know, but it, I don't know. It's just a weird page in a lot of the way the Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man stuff felt kind of needless at times. Yeah. But then we find ourselves in Spectacular Spider-Girl number four. It's 34 pages long. And so that's two of these little stories. And I don't know that I feel like everything really gets tied together or tied up so much as all of the hero stuff in the background just kind of suddenly piles into this and there's still Punisher stuff for some reason. Yep. That's, that's, that's how it goes. It's almost possible to accept the whole wild card reasoning. It's fine. I don't know how I feel about all of these heroes just kind of piling in. I missed the warriors. I like that the buzz and American dream are together. But it does sort of just feel like there's too many versuses, versusing, and for a couple of pages, Spider Girl, whose book it is, is just kind of like sitting at the dining room table. Yeah, you know, what a disappointment to not get to see her run in with her friends. Because she's earned it. Yeah, exactly. All of these issues have been about her and for her. So that she gets to take down the Punisher as soon as she shows up is fine. But I don't know. Like Don Silvio beating the shit out of all of the heroes kind of bums me out. And then I don't love the optics of Spider-Girl and American Dream both getting choked out by the Hobgoblin. There's just a lot of like, this isn't exactly how this needed to go. Uh, Yeah, I completely agree. There was a... A queued up battle between the Green Goblin, who is currently Phil, and the Hobgoblin. And I really felt like we could carry that for a couple panels more and just do something fun for a second and maybe give Phil like a little bit of a win. It's such a reminder that the Hobgoblin could be anybody. He could be any character that we just randomly throw into a crime family that wants to be the head of crime. And that's even part of why I have no real relationship with the man Marco Mountain man Marco stuff happening. It doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't bring the story anywhere. I just feel like the story is continuing on and Spider-Girl's story is unrelated while this is happening. Yep. Yeah. This is this is not a story for her. She just happens to be in it. Which is a really weird, sad play out for her final issue. Yep. But all of this going on, it's really hard not to be amused by Frank and Silverback killing each other you know take yourselves out of the book that's fine mayday just sort of leaves they sorry mayhem just seems to sort of leave and then they all sort of fight hobgoblin i don't know it just all kind of happens a lot of things just kind of happen on page and if this had been the end i would have been devastated yep i just want to make my notes um you know my actual notes say wait it's just over it's just over and mayday just goes home and mayday and mayhem just goes off and it's just over it's just over is yeah. it over it's just over. i mean it's just over 
her. She turns her symbiote body into a gigantic knife and stabs Hobgoblin and kills him. Mayhem does this. And that really was the problem. Hobgoblin showed up. That was the problem. Problem solved. Everybody head home. I mean, in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense. It's just, I can't believe this is it. You know, for what I got an ending to and for the conclusiveness that it did offer, I'll give this a B minus, maybe a C plus. Um, You know, I guess I'm giving it a lot of, I got characters I missed points. Yeah. So I'm fine with that for this one. But this wasn't anything, you know, groundbreaking. I definitely didn't need Hobgoblin back, but I'm glad that it's dealt with so that like the inevitable return of Spider-Girl someday doesn't involve Hobgoblin, hopefully. I think my grade is probably similar. I think it's probably closer to a C plus, mostly just because this was not Spider-Girl's story, but this is basically her last story besides the end. This is our last series. And I just felt like you could constantly see places where they didn't need to go further in the direction they were going that cut May out of having stake in the book and more just made her a set piece or a plot point or something that just showed up. Um, And every single chance that they had to pull back from that and do something else and put the focus back on May, they never really did. And, you know, everything that's in here could have been great for like a MC2 World of Crime miniseries that was happening parallel to a Spider-Girl story that is about Spider-Girl. All right, so it's here. I mean, it's it's really fucking here. We are on Mayday Parker's last foray into Face Group where she is, man, I don't even know what to say about Spider-Girl the end because I feel like I spent so long thinking it was going to give me something. And they kind of try, but ultimately we've kind of generally agreed that it feels like this was the next 17-page digital comic. It feels like the present plot was the next 17- 17 page digital and then with it mostly written and maybe even mostly drawn somebody came to this creative team and said hey this is actually going to be spider girl the end and barring some insane thing happening years down the line this is going to be it for you guys in writing spider and so they said oh shit we already did all that work uh i mean i guess i could do like another 10 pages and just get it all to be uh, the end book yeah okay that's great let's do it and one of the parts that perhaps is the hardest to handle about the way it's treated here is that I feel like the book is top to bottom very sort of disrespected. The opening sequence does read very early Spider-Girl, that kind of quality of art that gives it a a grainy texture. There's a little bit less of the uh, maybe overall cleanness that I would be looking for. But once again, it just feels like we're bouncing into any other Spider-Girl story. There's a time where I felt like perhaps Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends believed that there was a strength in the accessibility of every Spider-Girl story being anyone's Spider-Girl story. Anyone's first Spider-Girl story. But I'm disappointed because it feels less like this could be anyone's Spider-Girl story and it feels like this could just be any Spider-Girl story. And that's not the same thing. No, because at least if it were anyone's Spider-Girl story, you could say that it was the Spider-Girl story for those people that like core 14 
15,000 people that hung on all the way through. But this doesn't feel like it's for them. This doesn't feel like it is for a new reader. This feels like it is for the purpose of having published a story that is called Spider-Girl The End. Yeah, in that regard, it feels like an editorial decision. And I don't know that it was. And again, this could be the story that Tom DeFalco and crew were really hoping for us to take from this. But right away, I am glad to see that some of the storylines that we've been waiting for are coming to a head. You know, they're pushing the Courtney and Wes toward May thing a little bit harder. I don't love that April is already back and already crazy and already doing her mayhem thing. But this is a really by the numbers kind of 80s into 90s. We're telling a dystopian future comic. So this is kind of tapping into that same thing we were talking about at the beginning of the series where a lot of this feels like it's targeting five years before the comic line launched. Yeah, I mean, this one could even be going further back than that, but really does feel like Tom DeFalco informed some of Joss Whedon's earlier work and then kind of copied off some of the later work. And this really makes me think about the two season finales of Dollhouse, which have a very similar bleak future retrospective feel to them that gives us a bunch of new characters that ostensibly we think, I don't really care about this. Why are you introducing somebody new at this point? Like, I need to know what happened to the old characters that I care about. And I will give Dollhouse a lot of credit that they really did manage to pick good characters and good actors to make us care about them enough to want to understand how they fit into the story that continued for the main cast. And as we sat down with this old lady who I have no idea who this is, but then immediately I obviously know it's going to be somebody associated with Spider-Girl. I just kind of had that same vibe of like, if we are lucky, what we will pull out of this is a bunch of characters that I thought I didn't want to know, like that I didn't care about and didn't want to know about, and that they will actually be very good inroads to letting us get some resolution on Spider. And I think we failed spectacularly in that attempt. But we got a really interesting adult Taurus appearance. The thing that I thought to myself since the first issue of Fantastic Five, if only I could see this giant brat as an adult. And here he is, looking like some kind of slightly green North Star. And I think the point where the book perhaps officially loses me is on page 16, where it says, I'm still haunted by what happened to uh, shortly after May died. My plan was simple. I figured I would assume her appearance. It feels like we're getting the next two issues in a few panels. And then all of a sudden, the pivot is wild. There is an implication that Mayhem kills some people I thought were already dead, but that's fine. She's going to go after Canis and Angel Face and Ilan. And I don't want to assume, but is that Argo? Like the Avenger? I'm a little lost there. Uh, it, it appears she's going to kill a Jawa. Um, <laughs> in the very far back, I think that might be a very poorly lit black tarantula, or it could be a smudge in the sky. But she goes on this killing spree that ultimately ends with her doing the unthinkable. She kills, you know, some people we don't care about, but then she kills Kane, not chill. And then she kills American Dream. And now I'm like, mayhem, you were never worth it. And I love the implication that all of these other heroes just watched aghast. It's really convenient that the Buzz's mask always looks shocked. <laughs> Um, also, who is the man with the turban in the back top left? It feels both racist and completely inscrutable. <laughs> 
Uh, he was there and very upset, so I'm very sorry for him. There's an older gentleman just hanging out on the right. I'm genuinely shocked J2 is not on this page. Of all the people, I mean, come on. Who is the goblin here? It doesn't look like Phil. It doesn't look like Normie. It has an emo haircut. I don't... There are so many people that aren't the person that I would have put as witnessing the downfall of Spider-Girl. And when we get to the ultimate reveal that if April ultimately went evil, Evil, the only choice they would have is to create an army of carnages that would immediately overrun the world. I'm like, okay, so you're telling me because a fucking spider venom person kills Captain America, all the other superheroes are just like, time for the symbiotes. Like, are you telling me Doc Magus couldn't do anything? Are you telling me that Doc Strange, who's still kind of running around, couldn't do anything? Dark Thor Devil shows couldn't up. do anything. Dark Devil? I mean, it turns out, like, Dark Devil's really hard to kill, so... I don't know. It feels super hand wavy. Like it's almost the opposite of it's a wonderful life. Number one, she ultimately decides the world's better if she is dead, which that's not Correct, the lesson. but sad. Yeah, it's not the lesson, even if it's accurate. But it's sort of like April is such a why me baby that she's like, oh, and if I get to grow up, I guess the whole world would end. And in her fantasy, all of her friends are like, yes, it's your fault i don't know it there's things i could like there are plenty of things i could very much like and i feel as though we just don't quite get there we really miss the mark in a lot of ways the united states government automatically coming up with carnage agents and it's a self-contained story that's all about this quick little time travel loop that doesn't really close out any of the storylines from other stuff there's people on the cover of this book that don't show up anywhere inside that i still need an answer from and about and for and the whole setup of the issue was undone by the end of the issue. What a statement on Spider-Girl. Yeah, I mean, to the point where we will be covering a few additional Spider-Girl stories, thankfully written by other people and thankfully starting to do some move-on work that we are so far past needing, but this never comes into play and doesn't, it's not really a thing. You never hear from April ever again. There's no mention of mayhem. It just, for the definitive end of Spider-Girl's storied and very long run. It is so odd to me that this one went in this direction and did not leave anything on the table for somebody else to pick up that would feel good to do so. Well, okay, but I'm really glad you added that would feel good to do so because it is kind of like they've been playing yes and this whole time, but they end it with a good luck. How do you pick up where they leave it off? There's something very unsatisfactory about this end. I want to pause for a second and say one storyline got a phenomenally satisfactory ending in this issue. The Cafe Indigo sort of swans crossing 4.30 in the afternoon teen soap opera starring everybody who couldn't get into Degrassi, the nextest generation, right? That storyline gets a pretty reasonable conclusion and there's this moment where the look on Courtney's face is I was always Chris Jokar in a wig. (laughs) Like, I I tried to manipulate May into being with Wes. Like, there's a look on her face. And, you know, I do also want to interact with something that makes me curious. Wes, by trade, is a comic book maker. Who did they choose to put May with at the end of the series? Yeah. 
there is a level of self-insert, not the phrase I would prefer to have used, that makes me wonder about the efficacy of some of this storytelling. It's strange to me that I walk away from this issue thinking, God, I love Courtney and God, I'm glad April's dead. But yeah, they ultimately made April a dead end and I'm glad May gets the thing she's always wanted, which is to be a normal girl because she thinks she gets how to be spider girl. The thing she needs help being is a normal girl, but making out with Wes while her mom excitedly looks clearly about to nurse Benji and Peter looks annoyed in the distance is not the moment. Especially after we already established the weird moment of Jean trying to get it in with Mary Jane watching in the background. (laughs) We already know this is a terrible idea for a storyline and a panel. The fact that it is not only one that we've repeated, but we're repeating with a Mary Sue for the romantic interest and it's the last panel of the comic. Okay, I'm going to add another layer to to that. What did May just do earlier today? Watched her sister <laughs> Watch her die? Other half die? Oh, oh, okay. And now she's just making out with this boy. Hey, boy. Lose it soon. Oh, it's I am stressed because Spider Girl was never the book about the girl dating. It was never the book about the girl going on dates. And I even understand that a good portion of the story here could be an attempt at forming an argument for her normalcy, her feeling safe and comfortable in her own life and in her own home. But that's not what plays out because this comes after losing her sister. And I don't mean to harp on it like there's only one thing in the whole world to think about when a tragedy has struck and that the tragedy. But Spider-Girl Two hours later... Yeah, Spider-Girl was never a romance character for me. The book never went romance places and when it did, they always felt clunk. This was not the moment to end on. I could not agree more. I honestly put her in the cafe and then have... So, okay, we we do have to go back to the cafe. Uh, It is a six-panel spread. I need you to look at panel two and panel five. Where are Courtney's eyebrows? Oh. (laughs) Is she a supernatural being? Get it, girl. (laughs) I love this for you, Courtney. They just come off and she can throw them at people and they're all powerful. I mean, I... So, five years from now, when Marvel calls and tells me I can write anything and I tell them that I will be picking up the MC2, it will be a story about Courtney becoming the most powerful being in the MC2 universe, going after the Beyonder-esque creators of it who look vaguely like Tom DeFalco, Sal Buscema, Ron Friends, and Ron Lim, and Pat Olive, and murdering them for making her look like this for the entire series. And, okay, so that's another question. I almost want to go back and read What If with you right now on, on the recording and be like can is does is this the same book can we even draw the line because this feels i don't know i just feel so disconnected from what spider girl was in one through a hundred and then i think i do think spectacular was in some ways better than amazing yes amazing was treading water in a muddy fucking pool and spectacular is just splashing around everywhere at a gross piss-filled amusement park but at least the water's chlorinated yes yes i could live with that I am so disappointed, I think, because I'd put so much emphasis on how this was going to be the book. Like, Spider-Girl, the end was going to make it all make sense and feel worth it. And it didn't. It, in fact, left me more confused at times because the fact that April is redeemed is very important. And I'm very glad for it. But 
But I do wonder if the creative team knew that that quick turnaround all happening off panel would be unfulfilling because we don't even see the turnaround. The last thing we see is the carnages unleashed. That's it. We never see her put in the work. No, it's really just all about her doing a big moment of self-sacrifice. And that's fine. But the point wasn't, God, I love the character of April. I really need her to do something to redeem herself so that I don't hate her. It was, this is a really cool character concept, but if she is this crazy and awful, she can never be a protagonist. And I would love to see her have a solid story. Blowing her up is not fixing any of the problems I had. It is just giving her something that technically balances the scales, but like from the story's own moral standpoint, not from me, the reader's interest in following cares. And that's one of the things that I also wonder about the efficacy of some of the storytelling that we're looking at. There is a very big difference between serving the story and serving the audience. If, you know, just to use like an example, if a character really catches on with a specific community or perhaps an actor really brings a certain character to life, you know, the difference between the performance of a character in the MCU versus their comic book counterpart, you know, Hank Pym in the MCU is not going to have the weight of having been a spouse abuser. You know, he's not going to have the weight of having hit his wife in the MCU and he has it in the Marvel Universe. So even though that's a part of the character in the comics, that's not part that we're going to necessarily translate to the films. Ultimately, that could lead to a lot more attachment to the character. That's going to put Marvel in an interesting situation where they kind of have to figure out what to do, what's the, you know, the right decision to make because there is a difference between what's best for the fans and what best serves the story. And if the fans become really attached to an iteration of Hank Pym, if what best serves the story is leaving him out of the picture or killing him off, in, for instance, you're not going to see them necessarily make that decision if they're interested in serving the fans and vice versa. There may come a story where they want more to serve the fans than to pay off the dividends of time invested. And I think Spider-Girl is a result of always trying to straddle that line unevenly. And maybe not really understanding who the fans were, who was reading this book, and how to pull new people in. When you talk about, like, if we were to pull What If right now and just look at it and compare it to this, I think the problem isn't that we wouldn't recognize things. It's that we would see such a lack of change and growth and movement that it's not that what we don't recognize is what we see. What we don't recognize is everything we've been through for the past 225 issues of story. That stuff all happened and it should be a bigger deal and have more weight. Even a character like April who's a real latecomer and whose plots did not do her justice, they happened. Like the idea that all we're taking out of this is a body that exists so that Spider-Girl can continue when we never really needed her to die in the first place. It just, it's a disservice to even the writing that these people did on all of these characters that after all this time, they are not in a place where, you know, maybe we don't recognize them. Maybe we don't recognize the woman that DeVita has become after learning at issue 25 that May was Spider-Girl and now she's her girl in the chair. That would be a completely different person than the DeVita that started at the beginning of the book and it would be a completely different person than the DeVita that we actually get because that DeVita is basically the same character minus like, I don't know, I guess she's class president, but we dropped that one too because there wasn't time for that story. It's weird because even though we have taken a look 
look at the wealth of material that still yet exists for the MC2 and discovered that we feel that there is, reasonably speaking, going by the amount we've already discussed per episode on average, we feel there's roughly six or seven more episodes of content that fit the overall scope of things, whether it's characters from the MC2 appearing elsewhere or it's direct continuations. And this period of time, we're going to kind of call MC2.5 and take a look at, you know, the evolving situation with Edge of the Spider-Verse, which is a situation that could see May return, but I don't think she's ever had a good ending, ever. There's never been a point where I felt like, oh, okay, if Mayday never gets published again, she'll be all right. It'll it'll read well when you go back and you look at a trade. I've made a lot of really lofty comments throughout the series. Oh, I hope they do, a, you could do the whole thing and like, because we did it in 225 issues, you could do the whole thing in three omnibus editions, four omnibus editions. I'd buy that. I really wouldn't. Uh, I really, really wouldn't. It's not, it's not cohesive enough. It's not one thing that four volume omnibus editions would give me something. It's not even shelf candy. It's such a great idea. And the ideas are so terrific. And if anybody picks this character up, I'm there. But I have been disappointed by Spider-Girl 100, by Amazing Spider-Girl 30, by Spectacular Spider-Girl 11, by Spectacular Spider-Girl 4, by Spider-Girl The End. And the thing that I go back to is each time it's a number one, I'm really excited. It's just, I'm so disappointed this was the original end of the project and we felt like we needed to do more because this ending gave us nothing. Yeah, it is that we couldn't tie a bow on it and say to people listening and to ourselves like, hey, there actually is more and you should go check that out for yourself. I want to get into it because I actually, I feel like we have to due to the fact that while, you know, Edge of Spider-Verse, I think is not an amazing May story and yeah, is not the point at which I would say like, and that is a good place to end. It does give us the first real glimpse of this is what happens when somebody else gets to write May. I don't like all the choices that that person makes. And I think there, we'll talk about it. There are some regular beats for the character in the story that I find problematic, but immediately huge shifts in status quo, different perspective on the character. And the shift in status quo results in a character that is going to have a different perspective herself. It's not just like somebody else is writing her, so he makes her sassier. It's that the story changes are going to lead to a character that has more growth to her. And this is like a sliver of story for one of many spider people that all have to get page time, and she is very clearly not the most important one. So it's pretty limited for her. But what she gets is a new artist, new writer, and some updated plot from there. We're going to do Spider Island, which comes off of Secret Wars, which is really, we'll talk about it, but it is kind of just a, a uh, B-side DeFalco story, and it's fine. It is it is a perfectly acceptable one. It's really not as frustrating as a lot of the ones we read. But then we get into some weird stuff that none of it is the end that I want. None of it is where I want to stop with this character, but we do start to get to do the work of chiseling away at this set-in-stone person that for over a decade did not change, not just not enough, like really did not change, period. Somehow just got encased in amber from an editorial and character growth standpoint. And it is messy that it is taking this long for her to get new writers on her and get some changes, some additional story, the type of which really changes a character. But we're making that headway 20 years later in little pieces of multiversal spider stories. If that's how it has to happen, it's weird. It's not how I would want to do it, but it is a unique story for a character. And we're making the headway. And I 
would love to do it with this crew and have anybody who has been interested in May get the chance to explore this thing that we've been waiting for, which is character growth. I'm going to miss May so much because like I've, I've read some of what we're going to look at and, you know, we're also going to take some detours into some other avenues. Thunderstrike, as he exists here, basically comes over to the Marvel Universe for that universe's version of the character, uh, you know, about six years younger and about 70% more irritating. Still done by the same creative team. He gets a terrible redesign, but ultimately the character winds up having a decent shelf life going on to appear as Thunderstrike over the course of about a decade. And it's just never the same as the excitement I had dialing back into this. It, You know, we started at the beginning of the summer, basically, but it feels like it might as well have been we started this when the universe began 10 years before we got to this point. I I kind of missed the, I guess it was innocence for May, but naivete for me that this book was going to provide the reflection that Spider-Man can provide when you analyze Spider-Man across time. You know, when you're talking about Spider-Man as he changes and evolves and grows and Spider-Man as a an iconographic standpoint, a cultural benchmark by which we can always measure the quality of heroes. Spider-Man, you know, when Spider-Man is bad, it's because he's bad. Spider-Man is never going to be allowed to become a less than good guy. And that means that decisions like this, you know, uh, Craven's Hunt or, you know, Civil War or even such controversial things as Brand New Day and, you know, One Moment in Time, One More Day. He gives you an opportunity to think about the way morality and the understanding of metafiction has changed. And I think nothing better exemplifies that than that was the plot of Spider-Man No Way Home. Spider-Girl never got to be that because Spider-Girl was so infantilized for both being young and a woman and beholden to an existing tatema that is an insurmountable sort of hero sigil. I miss feeling like I might see her grow up, but now looking back on this time, I might have to put this in a box the way I put 60s Daredevil, where it's something I'll revisit to talk about critically and culturally, but I might just need to accept that I'm a bigger fan of Spider-Girl than I am of any of her roles. But we're comic books fans, and we know that it is never an open and shut case. We can put things in the box, and I think it's really good to do because it makes room for other stuff, but someday somebody's going to make that announcement. Someday it's going to be a Jason Aaron, a Jonathan Hickman, a newcomer who whose name we don't really know now, but whose work we come to love in the ensuing years, Who said, or it's going to be one of us, who gets to pick up and do the things for Spider-Girl that we never saw her able to do and take the rough road that she got and make that a commentary on the experiences of a lot of characters, particularly women characters, as they try to accept the mantle that they are owed, but they are so often not given by male-dominated industry. I agree with you. She's probably going down in storage for me for a little while, but I'm ready to open that box back up again as soon as the first news comes out, and I do believe that it will one day. If I could have anything for May Day, it would be a new start, but kind of a different take on an old start. Something that several Spider-adjacent characters wound up doing later in life was some amount of detective work, and I think May Day Parker as a sort of Jessica Drew or Dakota North style detective would be a really cool, not necessarily max in content, but max style reimagining. I think the thing you need to do now is get her away from this era because, and this is so wacky to say, but if this 225 issues ended in 1999, we would be talking about what a pioneering book this was. But because it began in 1999, it falters in comparison 
comparison to things like the Ultimate Universe immediately. But I think there's still room for, you know, like the Young Avengers never really did college. The Runaways never did college. May as like the action alternative to Doreen Green Squirrel Girls Empire State University adventures. Totally something I would buy into. I'm going to miss a whole lot more than May in talking about this. I'm going to miss what the buzz never got to be. That three issues is one of the most homoerotic, exciting things I've ever read in my entire gay life. I'm going to miss thinking that Dark Devil was needlessly confusing to the point where it hindered the quality of his appearances. And I loved it. I'm going to miss And I want to go back to it and make it more confusing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to know. Kushala in the mix. I'm just, I was literally stunned into silence. Um, I just, I, you know, alternate universe Daredevil Zarathos possession shows up in 616 and has to directly interface with Kushala. Come on. I miss when Brenda was the most exciting thing in the when we thought that this young heroine could like become Spider-Girl's best friend for a minute. And of course, we are both going to miss the shit out of Rena. I'm going to miss the shit out of Rena and J2 and American Dream. As a matter of fact, some of the content that we are generating is taking a look at the meta value of a number of these characters and their ultimate number of appearances. The MC2 and their characters have appeared in some amount of multiverse discussion over the last few years outside of just Mayday. So it could be really exciting. I mean, I'm shocked that Mayhem hasn't come up in any of like the Venom and Carnage verse stuff. Like, yeah, I uh, completely am too. I actually, I come to think of it, I don't think there's ever been like Edge of the Venom verse, but you know, great. Marvel, call me. I'm ready. So it's good to go. It's actually kind of hard to say goodbye because this is the first real read, making sure I caught every word on every page of a character that I felt I grew up with. And I've ultimately come to find I did not grow up with this character. People who began reading Spider-Man in 1963, you know, through like 1960 or 1970, even 1975, you got to see him go to high school, go to college, graduate, fall in love, get married, have a child, nearly lose the child. Oh, no, did lose the child. I'm just thinking about Spider-Girl, you know, the clone saga. The most mystical annulment of all time. Yeah. In some ways, we've all grown up with Spider-Man. And I thought I grew up with Mayday, but I did. I grew up and Mayday never did. And it's hard to say goodbye to an illusion I had from childhood and recognizing it in the middle of a recording that I plan on releasing publicly certainly adds a layer of why God why. But the other thing I think I really need to say is I thought that I was going to be like to the end, oh, I'm the J2 guy. I thought we were going to make cute little, you know, characters of ourselves and I was always going to be drawing myself as J2. No, fuck it. I'm Spider-Girl. I love her. I love her so much, man. For all of the things I just said, Mayday has the best heart of anyone. Anyone. Like any hero, Mayday has the best heart. I put her up there with Miles Morales and Kamala Khan and these titans of heroic youth. And I just think Mayday is so much better than the sum of her parts. And she's so cool. I want to be like Mayday. I just think she is a hero. And in a world where it's hard for 15-year-old kids to be anything, let alone 15-year-old young women, that she is a hero. And believably, sometimes, a 15-year-old girl is just one of the reasons she's my hero. And I'm going to miss her. Yeah, I'm going to miss her a lot. I think we've seen the children of a lot of heroes. And I think it is a storyline that always gets subsumed by the heroes that are the parents because we don't want to lose any of those characters. A personal favorite of both of ours is Nathan Summers, whether he be Cable, whether he be Kid Cable, whether he be Nate Gray. But those stories are unique 
and very little of them are kid. The any childlike stuff is is war torn and and nuclear apocalypsed and that's all fine. That's great. Still love Cable. Really cool. But you know, Franklin Richards doesn't scratch the itch either. The thing that is really special about Mayday and it has to do not just with who the character is and who her parents are, who she's the child of, but also the decision to remove her from the main continuity and in doing so then focus the story on her. She is one of very few children of heroes who are just there to be heroes themselves in a way that does not bump up against a lot of other stuff. And for a while, that is a really great thing that makes her a character that we are so excited about. And from there, we needed to kind of let her out of the house a little bit and let her world expand. Not to the point where it was always, oh, how what what is how does Spider-Man feel about this? But just to give her a little more worldliness and a little more relevance. And that's where things started to falter. But the setup, the idea that this is a hero's hero because this is the child of a hero. This is somebody who grew up with the unconditional love of two parents who had to wrestle with great power and great responsibility and poured all of that into raising a child that would be a good kid. And then that good kid became a hero themselves with those same lessons that they didn't have to learn in the same way that their parents did that were ingrained from birth and that they grew up with. That is so fascinating and it is a core part of what makes May who she is. That is a well-established character. Now we just need to get her on adventures worthy of all that establishment. And hopefully we can get some amount of satisfaction in our further exploration of MC 2.5. As for me, I am giving Spider-Girl the end to C-, and that's about it. Yep, I think that's about right. Half of that is for nostalgia and love for the character. The other half is for those little little bits of character beats with, uh, you know, mostly Courtney and Wes who are silly, but at least we finally, after all this time, got a little bit of, oh, somebody actually does know she's Spider-Girl. That's great. You know, points off for Courtney's eyebrows specifically, unless we get an in-canon explanation for what's going on there, but we take what we can get. And I'm so frustrated that I only just now came up with wiki, 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 MC2 on the ones and twos. I think you would say MC on the ones and twos. Wiki, 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 wiki. So, TK, I cannot wait to cover more MC2 with you. Granted, we're never covering MC2 again, but rather we are taking a look at the reverberating echoes of the material we just spent something like 30 hours discussing. But until then, where can everybody find you online? You can find me all over this show, X's for Podcast, talking about new issues, old stuff, everything we can get our hands on. And you can find me as well on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You guys can find me in much the same place all over this amazing show, as well as my original work at kidriotcomics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology, full of some of comics' best queer talent. You can also find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where you can get links to not only everything about this show, but you can also check out the amazing Hubs Plus over on YouTube, which has additional content from our amazing team, including The Billy Club, an examination of Daredevil from the beginning, as well as additional material for myself and my husband at HTML. And until next time, keep it loose, slam heat, MC socket to me, uh, fucking hang in there, Thunderstrike's gonna get weird, and uh, yeah. The American dream's not dead. I mean, literally, the future where April killed her is gone, so she'll be back. Yeah, MC Earth 2 is... I'm done. I was like, wait, which DJ is MC Earth 2 again? Damn it! (laughs) 